Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This is a scene that takes place just hours after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a small town that is west of Jerusalem, about seven miles, pretty much due west. Uh, so it's a short walk. So the, the parameters for this passage this morning are pretty narrow. Everything's kind of compact in Israel. And this is the late afternoon of the resurrection. News has started to spread about what the women came back and said about the empty tomb and what Peter and John said about the empty tomb and the broader uh, scope of the disciples now are starting to hear this word, but there still hasn't been another appearance by Christ. So these disciples that we're going to read in a moment named Cleopas, and we're pretty sure the name of the other is Simon, they're heading back to Emmaus. It's going to take them a while. They don't want to walk in the dark. Seven miles is a long distance. So they start to head back in the mid-afternoon, late afternoon, and, and they're going back disappointed. They're going back a little frustrated, not angry, but frustrated that they haven't been able to personally verify what the women said, that they themselves haven't seen Christ. And John 20 tells us that Jesus is going to appear to his closest disciples, to his core, to the 11 plus, later on that evening. But before that happens, we get this account. Luke chapter 24, let's start in verse 13. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. Notice the posture there that they don't keep walking. They actually stop. And the Spirit gives us the, the expression of their countenance. One of them, verse 18, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? Jesus said to them, What things? They said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people. And now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. While they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of them who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, in all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. As they approached the village where they were going, Emmaus, and he acted as though he was going further, they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes, verse 31, were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road, when he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour 
and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experience on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Now, it's interesting that Jesus appears to these two men before he appears to those who had walked to him with him for three years, the ones who would be most excited by the validation of his resurrection. Now, that begs the question, and this hit me very strongly this week, why did the Lord do it that way? Why this order? Now, it it makes sense that he appeared to Mary because we know how much he had transformed Mary's life, how much she loved him, how much she had yielded to him. She had been at the tomb. Everything about Mary said that she was just so, uh, so in love as a believer with the Lord. But it seems odd that these two guys, Cleopas and the other guy who's kind of unnamed, but we see later in the passage, apparently his name was Simon, that, that these two guys are among the first two people to see Jesus alive and to be in his presence. Why them before the others? When you study the Bible, make sure you ask questions of the text because that's how we go deeper into what the Lord's trying to teach us. I think there are three main reasons why the Lord did it this way. Why Jesus appears to Cleopas and Simon after Mary and before the the core disciples. First reason is everyone would have suspected that the inner circle of disciples would be saying Jesus was risen. Even though when the news comes, they don't believe it. And and there's some skepticism and, and they're quite not confident in it. But, but it could be imagined in Jerusalem at that time that if something happened, because people had said, heard Jesus say, you know, I'm going to raise again. I'm going to rise this temple in three days. So, so it would make sense that if the body suddenly disappeared, that people would point their fingers at the disciple. This ensured that there were other witnesses. This ensured that there were people outside the 11 that would say, no, we saw him too. Second reason is that we know how jealous and competitive the disciples were, right? Sitting at the Lord's Supper in this great, momentous, life, earth-changing, spiritual-changing moment, they're going, I'm better than you. So we know how kind of petty and jealous they were at times and and competitive. So imagine if Peter and John, when they ran to the tomb, had seen Jesus. How are they going to come back? Think human nature here. We were the only ones to run to the tomb. Thomas, you weren't there. Uh, we went down there and we saw Jesus. Where were you guys? Can you, I mean, think human nature here, right? Can you imagine the kind of, we saw him. You guys did. Listen, if they could argue with the Lord's Supper, who was greater, that's a possibility, Right? So this prevents any of the 11 from saying, I was the first to see him. But I think the third reason why Jesus does this is the most significant. And that is that Cleopas and Simon were very typical of people that were around Christ prior to the resurrection. They heard him talking about who he was. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. They heard him talk about rising from the grave. And when the word came from the women, he's alive, he's not there, he's risen. The angels told us they were hopeful that it was true. But listen, they still had a measure of doubt until they actually saw him. 
Now, that's significant for us to say because that is the spiritual position of many people. They want to believe in Christ. They want to believe that what the Bible says is true. They want to believe that the resurrection is real and that we really can confess our sins and God will be faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They want to believe that, but, but they want it verified to their senses before their whole heart will be given to it. Now, that's very much fitting with our kind of cynical, tangible culture, which wants proof of anything spiritual, anything that it can't see. And yet the ironic part is that our culture is completely dependent on what it can't see working. You get what I mean? You want evidence of this, go to a restaurant or a mall and watch people. What is everybody doing? Tell me. Messing with their phones. What did we do without cell phones? We must have been the most boring people on the face of the earth. Everybody, even driving, probably two-thirds of the people I drive past who are driving slowly in the fast lane and I'm getting frustrated with, I'll pass them, look over, and they're eating and steering with their knee and, and kind of waving out the window and cleaning the window. They're doing all kinds of stuff. They're not driving. Or you go and you see everybody's like this. I was at a church once, a church I love and respect. As soon as the service ended, everybody put up the cell phone. Like they couldn't have gone two hours without texting somebody. This fits our culture. Our culture says, I must have technology. Now, I don't know how technology works. I don't know how I can pull out my cell phone and make a call and it bounces up to space and goes to my wife. I, I don't know how we can be on computers sitting on the same couch and be working on the same thing, but we're on different computers. I don't know how that works. I rely on it every day. But when you say, trust Jesus Christ, I can't see him. Well, prove him to me. Well, there's scriptural evidence. There's evidence of 400 witnesses. People have given their lives to this. Well, you can't prove it to me. And until you do, I'm not going to believe. This fits so many people who live comfortably in this stance from the skeptic who says, well, unless science can prove God, I'm not going to believe it. To the person who doubts the permanence of salvation. To the person who's dominated by worry because they just cannot yield themselves to fully trust in the Lord. To the person who says, well, when I pray, I want God to show me that what I prayed about is going to happen. To the person who says, well, I have to have spiritual signs and gifts to validate what Christ has done in my life. The problem with each of those positions is that Jesus doesn't have to prove himself. We can't keep saying to God, well, prove yourself over and over. And God says, I've already done more than enough. I don't need to prove myself to you or to anybody. I'm God. What he's done on the cross is sufficient to pay for our sins. What he has done by rising from the grave is sufficient to defeat those sins. And for anybody that has never done what we're doing and has never heard the gospel firsthand, Romans 1 says they're still accountable because they can look at creation and know that two atoms didn't collide at random and make this. And my question is, if you believe that, where did the atoms come from? Things don't come from nothing. There has to be a creator. And Romans says, even if you've never heard the gospel, you're responsible to the gospel because you can see it. But so many people have heard, and yet they still doubt. 
that what he has said and promised and proven to be true is real because they have to have some material verification of his presence and his power. That's why Jesus said to the, to the disciples when they finally saw him, you believe because you see me. But the people that are really blessed are those that haven't seen me and yet still believe. As Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The, the, the essence of faith is being conclusively and convincingly convicted about what is not visible and what is not tangible, but you believe that it is real as this pulpit that I'm holding on to. That Jesus Christ is not just some mythical figure, not some historical anomaly, that, that he's not just some great ideal, that he is the Son of God who came to live in flesh and die for our sins and rise again so we can be redeemed. And that is as real as I am. Now, that's a very important distinction. Why? Because of verse 16. Verse 16 is really where I want to spend all our time this morning. It's really one of the most fascinating aspects of this text because it says they did not know it was Jesus because, quote, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, stop and think about that just for a moment because it's a very intriguing concept. For some reason, the Lord withheld awareness of his presence to their hearts. Even though if they had known it was him, they would have instantly been encouraged and they would have wanted to tell others it was true. But for now, they do not know that they are sitting with Jesus. And the Bible tells us in verse 16 that that was an intentional act by the Lord. He hid his presence from them. Now, what's going on with that? Why would the Lord not just let them know it was him? The cynic would say, well, he's stringing them along and he's mean. And I told you God was, was kind of horrible and unfair. Listen, don't listen to that. As his children and his disciples, we might say, well, why wouldn't the Lord always want us to know that he's present with us? And yet, I know from my experience, and I'm sure you've experienced it too, that, that while we are confident that the Lord exists, while we trust in him with our lives, and we know that when we call on him, he answers, there are times when his presence doesn't seem as near as other times. And when we call on him, it doesn't seem like he's answering. Now, this is a type of spiritual dichotomy because we're told in Scripture that the Spirit indwells us. We're told in Scripture that the Spirit fills us. But there are times, believer, when God's presence feels as far away from us as the moon. David writes about it in Psalm 10. He says, Lord, why do you stand far off from me? He says in Psalm 13, Lord, why are you hiding your face from me? And he asked in Psalm 22, the passage that Jesus quoted on the cross, he says, why have you forsaken me? Now, David was a man of God, correct? Say yes. Good. I just want to make sure you're still awake. David was a man of God. 
He was a man with a heart after God. He was given an eternal throne by God. Jesus was descended from his line. But David said, Lord, where are you? Why are you far away? Why won't you pay attention to me? Why are you hiding your face from me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus said the same thing in that inscrutable moment on the cross when all our sins were poured out on him and he felt the weight of trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of sins on him. And in that moment, he experienced the penalty of sin and the weight of separation from the Father. This is a real thing. This is not just some imagined sensation as believers. We know that sin distances us from God. We know that not calling on him makes him feel far away. But what Luke 24, 16 is saying, and I want you to get this this morning, is that there may be times where the Lord purposely hides his presence from us. Now, we have to understand that because if that's true, and the passage tells us that it is, then the Lord wants to teach us something. And there is a very important spiritual principle here that we all need to see because it will not only help us understand what the Lord is teaching us during those times, but it will also deepen our appreciation of the presence of God and stir our hearts more fervently to abide in his presence. So here's the spiritual principle. Write it down or do something that will help you remember it, okay? Spiritual principle. The Lord sometimes hides his presence from us. The Lord sometimes hides his presence from us to test our trust in him and our desire for him. Very simple spiritual principle. The Lord sometimes covers his presence so that we will determine how much do we trust him and how much do we desire him. Now, there are times when when he seems like he's not there, but we know from Scripture, he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So what we're not saying is God removes himself and goes far away and takes a vacation and says, I'll see you in a week. God doesn't do that. His presence is always with us. But there are times where he does not seem like he's there and it seems like we're alone, listen now, to examine the resolve of our convictions. How we react, how we talk, what we say, what we believe, how we live our faith. It's it's easy when we sense his presence, right? We had incredible services last weekend. Friday and Sunday, I mean, I was just the highlight I was so excited after the service. We've been in the Lord's presence and the choir was singing and you guys were praising and we were fellowshipping and eating ice cream. And I mean, it was just, yeah, the Lord's risen. I mean, it was wonderful. That's easy. But what about the times when we don't have that experience? And it seems like David said that he's far off. Do we still have the same resolve? In those moments of perceived independence, does our faith still stand firm? Even Elijah, who saw fire come down from heaven and literally eat water, who had the whole nation turn to God because of that one moment of standing alone by faith, even Elijah, who saw the cloud shaped like a fist, and predicted it will be the end of three and a half years of of drought, and who ran faster than a chariot through the pouring rain back to Jerusalem. Even Elijah felt alone, felt abandoned by the Lord, and went up in a cave and asked to die. Because as hard as it is to believe, his faith faltered, 
and he somehow did not sense that the Lord is near. And if you look at the text and you see what I talked about when I was reading at the end of verse 17, it is a spiritual fact that when the Lord does not seem present, it makes our hearts sad. And it has a tendency to weaken the steadfastness of our faith if we don't see the Lord's purpose in doing it. Notice what they say. Look back at 19 for a second. When they speak, notice the tense of the verbs. Not English class here. This is important. What do they say? Well, Jesus was a prophet. And we were hoping that it was him that was going to redeem Israel. They even say, now it's the third day. This is the day Jesus was supposed to rise again. And they've heard the words of the women. And the women have said, it's true. And the angels told us. But but do you see in that text any confidence or any joy in their words? Do you see them saying, praise God, the Lord did it. Christ is risen. The women are right. The angels told us. We've got to get home, but we are going home with... Oh, we can't wait to get back to Jerusalem tomorrow because Jesus is risen. And maybe we'll see him tomorrow. But that's not what they say. They literally stop and their countenance drops. And they kind of mockingly say, are you new? Do you not know what's happened this weekend? We were hoping, oh, we hoped so much that this Jesus was the Messiah. But our leaders put him to death. Where is the joy? Where is the confidence? Notice what Jesus does. He speaks strongly to them in verse 25 about their lack of faith. He says, why don't you believe the words of the prophets? How do you fail to understand, you guys? How how do you fail to understand that this was necessary if Christ is going to die for your sins, that he has to suffer and he has to be put to death? It was predicted in the prophets. Do you not remember your scripture? And he really is very kind of blunt with them here. This is not the soft Jesus that everybody loves kind of saying, it's okay, guys, I'm here. Let me demonstrate it. Where's your faith? Don't you remember what the prophets said? Are are you guys so short-sighted that you don't see that all this was supposed to happen? And then it says he goes on, verse 26, 27. He teaches them about himself. And he says, let me tell you what the prophets said. Let me tell you what has to happen. He does that because even though they were looking for Messiah and they seemed to linger around Jerusalem to hopefully find him, their faith was struggling to believe. Listen now, because they only looked at the facts that were obvious. But as believers, it is vital for us to understand that the Lord works outside the limits of what we see and sense and know. You and I are spiritual creatures, and yet we constantly think as material creatures. And God does not always just work in the realm of this. I'm here, I'm standing on this platform, I'm looking at you, I have my Bible, and this is life. God says, I work way outside of that. I work in ways you cannot fathom 
There is a whole spiritual world around you that you can't even see. So don't limit yourself now to just what you know. Have the insight of faith. All throughout Hebrews 11, that chapter that you ladies are studying right now, it talks about the concept of the eyes of faith, about people that understood God's work even when it didn't make any sense. People that understood what God was doing and trusted his word even when it seemed impossible, like Noah who's building a boat even though it's never rained, and Abraham who's going into an unknown land and trusting God even though he's a 100 and his wife can't have kids, and Moses who rejects Egypt and goes into the wilderness and trusts God to take him back and lead the people out through the promised land when they're griping and rebellious and he stays faithful. And Joshua, who sees the walls of Jericho falling down before they ever blow the first trumpet. And Rahab, who says, I understand what's going on here. I'm going to help you guys because you're on the right side. And not to mention Gideon and Barak and Samuel and Daniel and everybody else. They didn't say, well, there's a pulpit and that's all. They said, no, listen now. The Lord works in mighty ways that are beyond our understanding. They were people that saw what God could do and they believed what he said in his word. I've had so many people in this congregation and it's been a blessing say to me, the Lord is calling Harbor Rock Tabernacle to something very significant and very specific. I do not say that with an ounce of pride or an ounce of exclusivity because I'm convicted about it too. What I do believe is that we need to trust him with a deeper, fresher faith, and that we have to humbly anticipate and be prepared for the work that he's calling us to do. Like the disciples in Acts 2 to 4, seeking the Spirit's leading, ready to follow his direction, unashamed in our witness and our stance for the word of God, and joyful in our love for him. And I will tell you now, I pray that we never, ever, ever, ever hear, either individually or as a church, the Lord saying to us, why were you so slow to believe? Don't let the Lord ever say that of us. Being away from the presence of the Lord changes our reality and our perceptions, and it causes our faith to lag. He's given us his word, and he's given us his spirit to remind us of his faithfulness. Jesus points them back to the prophets and he says, listen, that prophecy has come true. I'm not just faithful and true now. I've always been faithful and true and I always will be faithful and true. In fact, Revelation 19 says that when Jesus arrives, it says faithful and true across. That's his name. He is faithful and true. The Bible is the only book with prophecy. And it goes an extra step in that every prophecy that could have come true to this point has come true exactly as it was predicted and exactly when it was predicted. And there's nothing left to fulfill until Christ returns. Jesus says, think now, brothers. Think of what the prophet said. Let me teach you again. You believe, but you don't really get it. Listen to what the prophet said. And notice, he hid his presence from them so they would understand because it was the only way they could understand. Think if he had said, I'm Jesus. Would they have wanted to sit 
and listened to him teach at that point, what would they have done? They would have been giddy. They would have been overwhelmed. They would have been falling at his feet. They would have said, we got to get back to Jerusalem. Tell everybody. It would have been chaos. How does he get their attention to take them to a deeper level of faith? He doesn't say it's him. And while he has their attention, he teaches them the word. Listen, it's not wrong or unjust for the Lord to temporarily prevent us from recognizing him. In fact, there are times when he does exactly that, so we will desire him more. Now that leads us, time is tight, to the last part of the text. Look at verses 28 to 35. Because here in the second part of the text is when they gain understanding about who they've been talking to. Interestingly, even before they know it's him, there is a renewed sense of passion for the Lord, and it's indicated by four actions. And I want to talk about these four actions just for the next couple minutes because they teach us four very valuable spiritual principles about abiding in the presence of the Lord. I want you to write these down, okay? This is very important. You can just put at the top that the more we abide in the presence of the Lord, that's going to be at the start of every sentence. The more we abide in the presence of the Lord, dot, dot, dot. I'm going to give it four thoughts. Four spiritual principles come out of their actions. First spiritual principles in verses 28 to 29, that when they approach Emmaus, it seems like Jesus is going to keep going. And they say, please stay here with us. And they say, it's about to be dark. But what's the real reason? The real reason is spiritual principle number one. The more we abide in the presence of the Lord, the more we don't want to stop abiding in the presence of the Lord. The more you spend time with him, the more you can't get enough. How many people know that's true? You just crave more and more. I know that's true because some of you have told me over the last few Sundays, we we just can't wait for the next Sunday. Listen, that is not because we are doing anything special. That is not because we are trying to be clever or follow some pattern. People won't be convinced by insincerity, and the Lord doesn't need that to bring him here. All we want to keep doing as a church is to humbly come to his house and say, Lord, abide with us. Abide with us. Come close to us, and we're going to praise you, and we're going to call on your name, and we're going to study your word, and we're going to teach children about you, and we're going to learn about your presence, and we're going to rejoice over your leading. And I believe the reason he's responded to that in a unique way and helped us as we've begun and met with us is because there is a spiritual hunger for his presence. And I implore us, I implore us as a congregation to never, ever lose the desire for his presence. Never, ever, 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 ever. Have I made myself clear? Never stop Hungering for him. We have to keep abiding. Now the enemy is going to work hard to stoke our pride. And that is danger number one. Resist him and he will flee from us. The enemy is going to work hard to distract us. Resist him and he will flee from us. The enemy is going to work hard to dishearten us. Resist him and he will flee from us. And he is going to work hard to make us complacent. Tell me, resist him and he will flee from us. Look at verse 29. 
it says they urged him to stay with them. I love the word of the King James. Anybody got King James? Show me your hand. Five people. Wonderful. The King James, the word is constrained. It's a great English word that we never use. But it really fits what the Greek says. The word here means to literally compel by using force. Now, we know they didn't grab Jesus and say, you can't go anywhere. But the secondary meaning is to constrain by pleading. Can you see it? Can you get the sense of almost, I I, I wrote the word in my notes, the sense of desperation. Please don't leave us now. Stay with us. Teach us more. We need you to abide with us. Oh, that the Lord would see us as a people and as a church that hungers for his presence that much. Harbor Rock family, that must be us. Please don't leave us. Please abide with us. Listen, we have prayer meeting Wednesday night. We're going to come and the primary focus of that meeting, and it's the most important meeting we're going to have this week. The primary purpose of that meeting is to call on the Lord. To urge him, to implore him, to constrain him, to say, Lord, abide with us. Be with us. Lead us. Teach us. Show us. We don't know what we're doing. Show us what you want. And here's the amazing part. The Lord loves to abide with us. Somebody say amen. The Lord loves to abide with us. Prove it, Paul. Okay, John 15. Abide in me, Jesus speaking, and I in you. The branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, listen, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Think about the potential of that in regard to prayer. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. These things have I spoken to you so that you, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Would anybody like to experience that kind of joy this morning? The fullness of joy that comes from being in his presence. We have confidence that when we abide in him, he will never disappoint, never fail, never be selfish, never stop forgiving, never demand what he shouldn't, and never have questionable love. Every single human relationship we have, I don't care how loving it is, reaches moments of frustration, correct? I had moments of frustration with my wife this week. I had moments of frustration with my kids this week. I had moments of frustration with church members this week. I don't care how much you love a person, there will always be disappointment and frustration. But when you look at the perfect qualities of love in 1 Corinthians 13, and you see that, the Lord embodies them all. And he will never, ever disappoint. Spiritual principle number two. I'm trying to move quickly. The more we abide in the presence of the Lord, verses 30 and 31, the more our eyes are open to the truth and the more insight we have into his ways. The more you abide, the more you understand the truth and the more you understand how God works. Notice that Jesus did not keep them blinded indefinitely, just as he did with Paul in Damascus. He only hides his presence long enough to stoke their faith. He reasons with them. God is a logical God. He does not 
be, uh, he's not speak craziness. He speaks truth. And even though he kind of scolds them, he isn't harsh or unreasonable. He's gracious and compassionate. When you study scripture, make sure you are developing an understanding, the fullness of God's character. Don't just go to the traits that bring you comfort. Understand exactly who he is. Once their eyes were opened, it all makes sense. And they want more time with him. And that leads to the third principle, verse 32. The more we abide in the presence of the Lord, the more our heart burns for more of him. I love verse 32. Look at it for a minute. I know you're tired of listening, but look at verse 32 for a minute. After Jesus disappears and their hearts are open and their eyes get it, the first thing they say is, we knew it. We knew something was different. Now, I always used to see that as kind of saving face. I told you it was something different. I I told you. But it's not. This is an actual, fresh, spiritual waking that took place in their hearts before the fact. And after Jesus disappears, they say, oh, yeah, that's what that burning was. That's what that was. Oh, we knew when he started to talk, there was just something there. Oh. That makes sense. It was Jesus. Now, I was finishing studying last night. I had real physical heartburn for about four or five hours. I felt lousy last night. And at the height where I was really just feeling, ugh, I came to this verse again. And I said, that's the heartburn I want. My physical heartburn preoccupied my thinking and it caused me to feel different in the wrong way. And again, I was struck by how wonderful it is to abide in the Lord where he preoccupies my thinking and where he causes me to feel a different way and where he gives me joy and contentment and strength. Let me ask you this morning, does your heart burn for the Lord? When you are near him, is there a passion that is unrivaled, a power that is unrivaled? When you open his word, does that fire burn within you? And you say, oh, that's good. Every time I come back to the word, and I need to study more and more and more, but every time I come back, I go, what an amazing book. What an amazing revelation of God. That's what Cleopas and Simon experienced. Their hearts burned. They said, oh, that's it. And notice, this is it. I'm done. Notice how it influences their behavior. Look at verse 33. They got up that very hour. And they returned to Jerusalem. And they found gathered together the eleven, those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen. You think? And he's appeared to Simon and they begin to relate their experience in the road and how he's recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Spiritual principle number four, the more we abide in the presence of the Lord, the more we want to tell others about his power and sufficiency. It doesn't say it, but I honestly believe it because it's nighttime. The day has ended. Day ran sunset to sunset. The day's done. And I honestly believe they run back to Jerusalem. Seven miles. If you're running an eight-minute pace, that takes you an hour. But these guys are not runners. They're on an uneven road. They're in the dark. They're not wearing Asics. They're wearing sandals. But how many know that they did not feel a single step? They had been in the presence of the Lord again, 
And once they get there, they're breathless, not because they're tired, but because they just can't wait to say, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him. What the women said is true. He appeared to us. How much joy and strength do you think that brought to the others? Jesus is an hour or two from appearing to them. But when they came in and said, it's true, how much do you think it changed them? And how much do you think the word started to spread? And these two kind of fringe guys, Cleopas and Simon, start talking about Christ. They don't say, ah, it's kind of late. I need a snack. It's bedtime. Come on. We can't. Jerusalem is seven miles away. It's dark. There are robbers up. We can't go back. They didn't even wait. They ran and told others. Listen, when it's obvious that the Lord's near you and you're abiding with him, you know it. Or maybe this morning you feel like he's not close to you or you're not abiding in him. You need to understand this morning that there is no greater joy. Hear me now. There is no greater joy than being in his presence. And maybe this morning, I don't know. I don't know all of you. I don't know your situation. But maybe this morning, God is right next to you, but he's intentionally hiding his presence because he wants to see your spiritual resolve. Let me challenge you and encourage you. Do not run from him. Do not doubt him. Seek him. Ask him for discernment on how you need to yield and put even more confidence in him, even though you can't see him. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to open your eyes to what he wants to do in your life. And if you are abiding this morning, oh, if you're abiding with him, every one of us needs a renewed passion. Every day, we should say, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Just burn it fresh now. Give me something fresh. Lord, abide with me. Stay with me. Don't leave now. Come on. Be with me. Refill me. Refresh me. I need more of you, and I need to love you more and more. Oh, he'll do that. Bow your heads for a minute. Be real still now. Let's let the Spirit speak to all of us. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I may never know. But there is nothing like abiding in His presence. If you're far from Him this morning or you feel like He's far from you, it is not too late. He is waiting to show you mercy and waiting to show you grace. Don't doubt it. Don't run from him. Don't look for alternatives. It'll get you nowhere. Yield your life to him. Surrender it. He will fill you with joy unspeakable. Believer, we know him. We love him. We know how faithful he is. We know how good he is. Listen, there are so many distractions for us, so many things that drive us from his presence. The Lord has his hand on you. He has his hand on us. 
we've got to keep seeking, keep crying out, keep yielding and depending on Him. He will do a mighty, mighty work. Father, we praise You for the time we've had in Your Word this morning. We praise You for the joy of this hour as we've been together as a body. We ask You to work in a powerful way. Lord, where there's a life this morning that needs fresh direction and fresh guidance. Hide yourself long enough until that person cries out to you and then, Lord, reveal yourself in a powerful and mighty way. Stoke our faith for you. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Every morning, your mercies are fresh and ready and waiting. Throughout the rest of this day, Lord, fresh mercy, fresh joy. Tomorrow, fresh mercy, fresh joy. Not because, Lord, we're, we're, we're asking you too much. You promised that. We're not demanding. We're just asking you to fulfill your promises to us. We praise you for what you're doing. We praise you for leading us. We ask you to continue to lead us. We don't know what you want. We don't know what you're calling us to. The Lord will follow Take a moment, just sit in his presence. Gracious God, we love you. We said at the very start, we exalt you and magnify you today. We acknowledge that you are the only Lord, the only God. And we put ourselves in your hands. Thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not going to close with a song this morning. We're just going to say good morning. But... Can we just, we don't have to clap or anything, but can we just acknowledge that the Lord's been good today? To see 12 lives dedicated to the Lord. To be able to praise Him openly. To be able to hold this Bible in our hands. A lot of people around the world can't do this this morning. They'd be arrested and killed. Let's this week really, really abide. Time in His Word. Time in prayer. Be there Wednesday night. Let's gather together. I mean, record numbers. Okay? Record numbers, Wednesday night. Let's just come and call on the Lord and see what He can do. God's faithful, amen? God bless you, strengthen you. Hang around, fellowship with each other. May He encourage you throughout this week. We'll see you Wednesday night.